Amen. Church, it's Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Glad you are with us today. It's a joy to be together. If you are a visitor with us today, uh, I want to especially let you know we are especially glad that you chose to join us today uh, to worship our, our risen Savior and Lord. Uh, and I want to seize the opportunity to invite you to come back next week uh, and join us again. I invite you to stop by the connection table before you go today to get some inf- more information about the church. We'd love for Redeemer to be a place that you could call home. Uh, next week, we'll actually be beginning a new uh, sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Titus, and so it'll be a great time to jump in and, and join us. But today, uh, it's Easter Sunday, and so we're looking at and considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no matter who you are or or what your spiritual background is as you come in here today, uh, the resurrection is worth considering. Let's just say uh, you received in the mail some official-looking letter from some law firm uh, representing some distant relative that you didn't know that you had, uh, and this distant relative has passed away, and the letter informs you that they have left you millions of dollars in inheritance Now, you and I might read a letter like that, and we might think in the world that we live in, with all the email scams that we get, I don't know if this is real, right? But you'd look into it, right? (laughs) You definitely definitely would look into it at least a little bit. Why? Because the offer is so great. It demands that you consider it, that you look into it at least a little bit. It would be silly not to. But consider the offer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might be skeptical about it, but the offer is so great. It offers you not just some uh, sort of eternal, immaterial, spiritual existence, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers offers you a new, glorified, resurrected body patterned after His in a restored, perfect world where you are reunited with, with loved ones, and even more, where you are able to live in the glory and the presence of the Lord Himself. The offer is so great. No matter how skeptical you might be, you have to look into it. You have to consider it. And maybe the best passage to look at in order to consider the resurrection is, is the one we're looking at today, the resurrection account from John's Gospel. And what we see in this passage is the wondrous complexity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the resurrection is presented to us as it is elsewhere in, uh, in the Bible as a historical event, something that actually happened in hi- human history, and yet the resurrection is more than that. It's not just a, this fact of history, but the resurrection is also deeply personal. It's also exceedingly gracious containing the power to absolutely change any life. That's what we see in our text today, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I invite you to turn there in in the Bibles there on your row. Page numbers should be on your screen for you. And invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, 
the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the joy that it is to gather here to get today. We thank you for your great love for us. That you gave your only son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us. And we thank you for the victory that Jesus has won, that we are invited to share in through faith in him. Lord, I pray that as we look on this resurrection account in the Gospel of John today, you would open our eyes. Open our hearts, our minds to truly consider, to think on the offer that is made, the victory that has been won. Lord, that you would change our lives by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may have a seat. The the Apostle John, in these words, he's he's going out of his way uh, to show and point out to us that this is that the resurrection is a is historical reality, it, it is of a personal nature, and that it, it provides a, a gracious provision. All right, first, uh, we see the historical reality of the resurrection here. Now, as I say that, there, there might be some of you in the room who are thinking to yourself, resurrection? A historical reality? Really? I'm skeptical. After all, it's not every day that someone dies, and then a few days later... They're resurrected, walking around, appearing to people. How, how can we be so certain that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality? Add to that the common thought that, that many people have that in our culture that Christians are just people who just decide to believe. 
right? The, the, the kind of this way of thinking that there, there are rational people out there who think through things deeply, and then there are Christians who just choose to believe in things that are irrational and impossible. There's also this assumption that many of us have in our time that we look back and we think, well, those people in the first century, they were, they were just so much more, you know, just open to believing in things like a resurrection, right? Just more open to believing in miracles, irrational, impossible things. I mean, after all, I mean, let's be nice about it, but they were less intellectual than we are, simpler people. And so they were just naturally open to believing in the resurrection, But what John points out to us here in this account is that belief in the resurrection for those initial believers came through considering. It came through deep thinking on factual evidence. It took a great deal of evidence and a whole lot of reasoning to believe in the resurrection for those first believers. And that's how the Christian faith actually works. In fact, there's a reality that if your Christian faith isn't informed and shaped by all sorts of deep thinking and reasoning, then it will never last through the ups and downs of life in this world. Faith is obviously more than just deep thinking and reasoning, but it's also not less than that. But John points out so many details here in his account, so many pieces of evidence that that point to the historical reality of the resurrection. John's account begins and and focuses on Mary Magdalene. In other accounts, uh, Mary is part of a group of women. Uh, But John's account isn't denying that, by the way. If you look closely at verse 2, you'll notice when she comes to Peter and John, she says, we don't know where they've laid him. Uh, But John is intentionally here wanting us to focus in on Mary Magdalene in the account. Uh, Mary, of course, goes to the tomb early on that first day of the week, on Sunday morning, before dawn, probably between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., before the the sun came up, and, and she discovers that the stone has been rolled back. The tomb is empty. And she runs to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who is never named in John's gospel, but virtually everyone agrees, is John himself. He's the other disciple. So she runs and she tells Peter and John what she's seen. And then, they, and then, and then look at the details here that, that John mentions. We get details about Peter and John and, and their approach to the, temple, uh, to the tomb. Like they're, they're not just going to the tomb, but they're running to the tomb. And, and we have to have the detail that, that John outran Peter. Because John was much, much younger than Peter, considerably younger than Peter, likely. That's probably a big part of it. But John gets there first. And you even see their personalities a little bit. John gets there first, and he looks in, but he won't go in. And then Peter, of course, when he gets there, he just bowls right on into the, to the tomb. He's got to take a look and, and see it all for himself. Verse, verses 5 through 7 here, we, we, this is what we read. And stooping to look in... He saw, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Notice the focus here on the linen cloths, repeatedly. It's also interesting that the the Greek word that is translated as the word saw, when it mentions that Peter saw the linen cloths as he goes into the the tomb there, it's it's not the more common Greek word, 
blepo, which means to see, but it's the Greek word theoreo, right? Where we get our word theorize from, right? In other words, as Peter and John are looking at the grave clothes, there is a lot of deep reasoning and thinking that is happening here. They're considering the options. What does this mean? These cloths lying here, his body gone. Why, why would grave robbers ever take the time to remove the linen cloths with all the valuable spices that were used to embalm the body? They would never do such a thing. They would never take the time to do that. They would take that with the body when they robbed it. Why would disciples of Jesus dishonor his body in this way? Removing the burial cloths. They would never do such a thing. They're contemplating what they see. They're deeply thinking it over. What does this mean? There's no evidence of any violence or any disturbance which any involvement of grave robbers or the Jewish authorities would have involved. Even more, John is very specific about how the grave clothes are lying there. The face cloth, he says, is folded up. And even more specifically, in the original Greek, it really means that it's rolled up. It's rolled up. In other words, one commentator helps us understand what Peter and John are looking at are linen cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus' dead body. And now they are, they're still lying there enfolded as if they were still enfolding his body. But the body is gone. The spices still adhering to them. The face cloth a little distance away. They appear undisturbed. Not like anybody unwrapped them. But almost as if Jesus' body simply passed through them. In much the same way that Jesus would later appear in a locked room. Seeing this, thinking on this, John responds in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. The evidence of the scene brings John to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible again and again presents the resurrection as a historical reality with with much evidence to support that Jesus is in fact risen and alive. These first disciples of Jesus were not more inclined to believe in a resurrection. In fact, their, their worldview had absolutely no room for belief in an individual resurrection, the possibility of this taking place like this. Even the Jews who believed in a holistic, like worldly, like resurrection of everything at one time had no concept of an individual resurrection before that point in, in spiritual history. It took evidence, it took reasoning for them to believe. Even here for Mary Magdalene, seeing the empty tomb, seeing the linen cloths, it isn't enough for her. She had to actually see Jesus himself in order to believe. No one was looking for Jesus to be resurrected. None of the disciples were expecting a resurrection. They scattered after his death. It's only after they see the evidence. It's only after they encounter the risen Christ that they believe. The fact that all four of the Gospels tell us that the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ were women disciples of Jesus is further evidence 
that the resurrection is a historical reality. John and the other gospel writers were writing their accounts in a culture where the testimony of women was not admissible in a court of law. And because of this, the fact that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women did no favors for the early church. This isn't give them more credibility by saying our first witnesses were a group of women. Historians today would tell us that if you were trying to invent a legend, this is not the way that you would do it, right? You wouldn't have the least credible witnesses as your first witnesses. You wouldn't do that unless it actually happened that way. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 also mentions other first-hand witnesses to the resurrected Christ. He lists them off. He names them one by one. He even mentions that Jesus appeared resurrected to more than 500 people at one time. That he appeared numerous times to hundreds of people over a period of 40 days. And Paul, the way Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15 is essentially like he's saying to us, if you don't believe me, right, most of these people are still alive. Here are their names. These are the, the places that you can find them. Go talk to them for yourself. Ask them what they saw. The eyewitness testimony of so many points to the historical reality of the resurrection. But perhaps the greatest evidence is the complete transformation that happens in so many lives. One example is Peter himself. Peter who goes from being ashamed of telling a little servant girl that he was one of Jesus' disciples, scared for his life. But after the resurrection, after he is restored by the resurrected Christ and encounters him. He's preaching the gospel boldly in the face of death. There's Saul of Tarsus, who sought to destroy the church, who was literally helping kill Christians, trying to stamp out Christianity from the face of the earth. But he encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he is transformed. He becomes the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time. Virtually all of the original disciples died brutal deaths in the end, martyred for their faith and their testimony that Jesus was raised. Refusing to recant their testimony of what they witnessed, they went to their deaths. There is so much evidence that that points to the historical reality of the resurrection that invites you to consider it, to look into it, to think deeply upon the evidence of Peter and John, like Peter and John, that by God's grace, it might move you to also believe. Now, John not only gives evidence for the historical reality, he also shows us the personal nature of the resurrection. Right, the main thrust of, of this passage here in, in John 20 is the encounter between Mary Magdalene and the resurrected Christ. Notice how gentle Jesus is with her. See his gentleness with her. Mary Magdalene is, is, is in so many ways this very admirable person in the Bible. Uh, you can see even in this passage, you see her deep love, her deep passion for Christ, her devotion to the Lord, going to the tomb early that Sunday morning, before dawn, coming to mourn her Lord. She's weeping. She's crying out, where is he when he's not there? Notice that even though she thinks Jesus uh, to be dead. She's, she's always referring to Jesus as her Lord. She never refuses to call him her Lord. And yet despite her deep love and devotion, 
her view and her understanding of Jesus remains too small. It remains too small. She comes looking for a dead Jesus. She comes looking for a a small Jesus. She's looking for a Jesus that her worldview and her human categories will allow. And that is a Jesus who's a a wonderful teacher, a a godly man, a a miracle worker. Her categories for Jesus are, are too small. Jesus had to reveal himself to her, and he does very gently, very graciously. He comes to Mary asking her questions Why are you crying? Could you describe this person for me that you are looking for? The way he reveals himself is, is deeply personal and it is very gentle. He doesn't arrive with the sound of trumpets and fanfare, right? He doesn't issue a press release. He doesn't show up like a superhero. There's no Avengers assemble or here I come to save the day, right? There, there's no flash, no spectacular arrival. He doesn't even show up and say, hey, it's me. That's not what he says. What he does, what he says is Mary. Mary. One word which remade her world and transformed her life in that moment. And that one word was her own name. It's deeply personal. And she responds with overwhelming joy. Raboni, or my own dear teacher. That's what that means. It's deeply personal what Jesus does here. Notice he doesn't say, uh, excuse me, Miss Magdalene. He says, Mary. Mary. And this, this encounter is also showing us the gracious provision of the resurrection. This encounter with Mary is in some ways a, a summary of the whole teaching of, of the Bible. And, and, and this, that is this, right? As much as Mary loves Jesus, that she's, she's desperately, uh, and she desperately wants to find him on her own, she will never be able to find him. By her own effort, she will never be able to find him. Because she's looking for a dead Jesus. She's looking for a human Jesus. She never would have found him if he didn't reveal himself to her. Humanly speaking, what this shows us is that faith is impossible. Humanly speaking. You can't work your way to Jesus, right? You can't can't get your life together enough to make your way to introduce yourself to Jesus. You can't find him. In your own strength. Only if Jesus comes to you. Only if he reveals himself to you. Is faith possible. And even your thinking and your reasoning. As much as you try to use them. And and allow them to be a part of your journey. Unless Jesus comes to help you with your thinking. And your reasoning. it, It won't get you there. He has to come and open your eyes. Open your heart. Open your mind. For you to be able to embrace him. For you to see him as he truly is. He has to come and reveal himself to you. In order for you to get beyond what your human categories will allow Jesus to be. He has to come to you. But this passage shows us that Jesus does come. He does come. And that he saves by grace. By sheer grace. Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Mary. 
to Mary Magdalene. He chooses her to be the very first witness to go and tell others about his resurrection. Who is Mary? What do we know about Mary? Well, if you read in in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, we're told there that Mary Magdalene was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She was a demoniac, right? Multiple demons inhabiting her body. And if you want to have a picture of what that is, you can go read Mark chapter 5. And you get a picture of what a demoniac looks like. A demoniac is a person who's, who's wandering around. Uh, they're, they're half naked, crying out, talking to themselves. They're, they're living on the fringes, most likely homeless. A complete and total outcast from society. And Jesus chooses to reveal himself to Mary. To this Mary. He chooses to reveal himself to a woman. Not a man. To someone who had been plagued by demons. And if you're unable to really grasp that, you'd have to say someone who is at least formally insane. Someone who is a social outcast. And he says to her, you're my messenger. You're my messenger. This is, this is so powerful. Jesus could not be more clear. He is saying that he saves by grace alone. He doesn't save on the, the basis of your morality, your, your pedigree, your social standing. He, he doesn't save on the basis of any sort of human achievement or attainment. He doesn't save on the basis of your work at all, but on the basis of his finished work. He doesn't save people who think that they're strong. He saves those who know that they are weak. He saves by sheer grace alone. Mary thinks that he's the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener. And he says to her, Mary. By his grace, Jesus is giving her a new identity. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and they know his voice. In saying Mary, he's saying to her, I love you. I love you. I love you personally. I love you expensively. I love you eternally. I love you. He says to her, he says to you, I love you. And I've lived the sinless life that you never could in your place. And I've died the death that you deserve for your sins. I've paid your debt in full that you might be restored to God. And I, I am risen. I am alive. I have won the victory for you. And I extend it your way by my grace alone. I give myself to you. Look at verse 17. Jesus, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. What Jesus is saying here is, you don't have to cling to me like you're afraid that you're going to lose me. Like you're afraid that I'm going to go away again. You don't, you don't have to cling to me like that. Because I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Do you hear the grace in that? Here's your identity. God is now your father too. 
He's your father now too. You are his beloved child through faith in me. That's your identity, Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm ascending and I'm going to be at God's right hand. And then I'm going to send the comforter your way. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into your life. And then you will have me in a way that I can never be taken from you. Not even if they throw you into the deepest, darkest dungeon can we ever be separated from one another. Through his cross and empty tomb, Jesus is saying to you today, I love you. I love you. He's not some dead founder of just some religion that you get to know by keeping a set of rules. He's the living Savior and Lord who invites you to encounter him and to get to know him. The more you get to know Jesus and love him as your risen Savior and Lord, the more that you experience his love as he reveals himself to you, the more you'll actually get to know yourself and who you are in him. Look into the resurrection. Consider what it offers you. Identity, grace, the love and presence of Christ that can never be taken from you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this day to celebrate, as we do every week, but to particularly on this day celebrate the victory that you have won for us through your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, would you enable us by your grace? Would you reveal yourself to us, Jesus, that we might see you for who you truly are, not a good teacher, not a godly man, but the risen Lord and Savior, the creator and sustainer of all things, almighty God, who came to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us. Help us to see you for who you are. Enable us to to know you, to love you, to live for you in every way. Transform our lives by your grace. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.